Welcome to the Strategy and Leadership Podcast brought to you by SME Strategy. Our goal on the Strategy and Leadership Podcast is to bring you practical and actionable tools that you can implement with your teams right away. My name is Anthony Taylor and I'll be your host. Each episode, I'll interview a senior leader or a thought leader that will help you elevate your ability to lead people and drive your organization's strategy forward. Our partner is Cascade Strategy. They're our favorite tool for tracking and executing strategic plans, providing visibility for your entire team, and helping everybody have insight into where you're going and what you need to do to get there. If you're looking to improve your strategy execution, visit smestrategy.net slash cascade for a link for a free 90-day trial so you can see for yourself if you enjoy it and helps your team move forward. So with that, I want to thank you again for joining us and we'll get into today's guest. I want to formally welcome you, Terry. So for those of you that don't know Terry Clark, Real Board Solutions. Terry, why don't you tell people a little bit about your background, how you got to where you are, and what you love about what you get to do? Well, I've had a three-stage career. I was an accountant for nine years, um, operation and sales management for, I guess, uh, six or seven. But for the last 25 years, I put a focus on working with boards of directors of not-for-profit organizations, whether they be regulatory associations, societies. Love what I do. Uh, come today enthused, and I'm really glad you invited me on. Thank you. Excellent. So what are the things that have kept you busy? So obviously, you know, you've been doing your work for, for 30 years. What kept you busy in this 2020 world? Very different. Has it been the same Prior to 2020, I was doing some uh, Google online training, but uh, since the pandemic hit in March, there's been tremendous amount of uh, improvements on online and, and using Zoom and different technologies and Feedloop. I've taken them, I've learned them, I've participated in them, and uh, I've really embraced it. In fact, right in the front of my website, I've just got the great big words of virtual training available. Uh, I don't think we're going to come out of this pandemic, uh, you know, with just the vaccine. I think this is going to be here and here forever. And certainly a lot of boards are saying to me, I don't know why we used to make face to face. We don't need to. <laughs> I, I, and I'm fine with that. Ditto. But we'll, we'll see. I, I actually I run a CEO peer group, and that's one of the areas that I feel like I've lost that that personal that connection and trust. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but there's a lot of components to it. So. As sort of a first question I have for you is, what is board governance and why is it important? Board governance, it comes from a Latin term for the word leadership. Uh, you take leadership and board, put it together. I call it board governance. But sometimes I like to put the word governance right out of the way because it's a little, it's confusing. Uh, so I like to call it as board development. So um, volunteers and sometimes paid board members, mm. I've got roles and responsibilities, uh, duties, potential liabilities that sometimes they have no idea that they even do have. I'll, I'll give you a retain, a, um, uh, I'm not a lawyer. I'm not offering legal advice. Any questions you ask me, I can, you know, give you my experience with it, but I am concerned going into 2020 with finances the way they are in some cases that uh, certain things aren't going to get done. And uh, I'll, I'll mention this like right up front quickly. Some organizations are looking at merging right now. 
Uh, some are getting down on their finances. They're um, getting money through some of these uh, SERB programs with the federal government. But if it gets to the point where they get low and they have to make a choice between who they are going to pay and they choose not to pay their taxes or GST, guess what? The board members are on the hook for that personally. And I've, I've had them look at me and say, oh, no, 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 that's not right, Terry. And I'm thinking, well, it is. And they all say, well, I think, you know, we might just have to kind of resign here and they go to stand up. And I'm saying, if you've been on the board for two years or more and this is happening now and you knew it could have, they'll come after you. Hmm. So first of all, so in terms of our audience, we got audience from all over the world. This is being yeah. live on YouTube and, and through here. And what I sort of looked at who's there, because I look at every single person. Good, good, yeah. And it's sort of a mix of people that are executive directors. We've mm -hmm. got some people who are middle leadership and then there's board members. So as a first sort of question, I guess I've already asked you probably a dozen questions. What is the key or what are the keys to an effective sort of board leadership relationship? What are some of the things that if you've seen that create a very healthy relationship and a good working relationship between the board and the people within the organization? Well, probably the key is the executive director. Uh, sometimes you'll see me, you know, go back and forth between calling them the executive director or, uh, or general manager, but it's a chief staff officer. Their job is on the line. This is what they do. This is their career. Whereas board members come and go. They do. So the executive director holds the organization. Uh, they're the glue. And they're the first step in ensuring that the board members understand their roles and responsibilities. And Anthony, if my kids were to ask me, uh, what do you do, Terry? I would say I help boards understand their roles and responsibilities. Because if the executive director's not sure what they are, and the board members are not sure what their roles are, it's chaos or semi-chaos. And, you know, it's been that for a long time. And some of that is changing with installing new models of governance. Now, the Carver model has been around for a long, long time, but there are newer ones like the complementary model and the collaborative model. So uh, taking one step back to answer your question on that is the first thing the executive director and the board must do is identify the type of model that they're using. And if they're not using a specific model, you probably got a bit of a problem. They may say, oh, we're just using the traditional model, whatever that is, but the traditional model just doesn't work anymore. So why is it important? Because a lot of the people here, you know, they don't have, we'll call it immature or non-mature board board sort of development and part of their board development is why they're here. Why is yeah. it important to have a model to govern your board, whether it's for-profit or not? Well, let's say that your board has got something to do with fundraising one way or another, whether it be sponsorship or, or grants or something. And you bring a new board member in who's uh, all enthusiastic, but he's come in from another sector and he's come in from an advisory board. And so he sits on the board, which is a fundraising board, and he's great. He gives a lot of advice, but he doesn't actually do any fundraising or make introductions. 
So right off the bat with that one key example, you've got a misunderstanding of who does what. So there's new uh, board matrices, which are used to uh, identify potential board members to make sure that they got the right skill sets. Let's take realtors as an example. If a board is made up of all realtors with a new board matrix, what they're doing is they're taking, and they have to change their bylaws to do this, to allow two non-realtors to be appointed to the board. So they may appoint a lawyer and they may appoint an accountant to give them a better scope of understanding so they're not focused on whether it be just real estate or dental work or whatever it may be. Got it. So what I hear from that is, you know, in terms of working on the board development and is the first part is identify, you know, whatever board structure you're going to have in place. Yeah, you're yeah. taking that next step to build that. Look at one of the models and we can talk about the models later. And then within that, looking at the roles and the important, or like, so that clear that the board members understand what their role is and, and exactly. yeah. what the role is. Yeah. Not. And then I also heard that we talked about earlier is that the roles are determined, I guess, in conjunction. It's the executive director that is leading the board and not necessarily the board leading well, the executive director. How does that work? Well, it's 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 kind of the executive director is the glue. However, the executive director and all of the staff are employees of the board. So mm-hmm. there's a, a push and pull of like who's responsible for what goes back in the rules and responsibilities. Well, the executive director, if he doesn't do what he is to do, whether he doesn't follow the strategic plan, whether he doesn't meet his goals, he can be gone. So there has to be a real clarity on what he's responsible, he or she, and what is the board. So there's pull back and forth about, I'm in charge, no, I'm in charge. Well, the bottom line is the board is, However, if the executive director doesn't follow the policy, we got a big problem. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, to confuse things, some of the executive directors are much better in policy. They understand the organization. So it's good for them to be able to provide policy too. We got the different modes of governance. We have the different roles. We have making sure that there's that like push and pull working together. What are some of the steps that that leaders can take to develop that? Like, how do they create the the pathway or the openness or the understanding to develop that? I guess it'd be like a symbiotic relationship. What have you seen either with your clients or what you've ideally what you've seen people do versus what you recommend, so to speak, that have fostered that working relationship? Because I've seen a lot of boards and leaders that have a somewhat tenuous relationship or that don't recognize that they feel like it's the board governing everything, which is in a way true, but also that especially with young and newer board members that they need to be led by their executive director. So what are some of the steps that you've seen put in place to develop that? And and Well, I'll answer the second part of that first, because When you say multi-generational, we're dealing with four different generations now. And, uh, you know, I'm a baby boomer. Um, uh, We're not going to be around forever. Mm -hmm. And so we've got to bring in new board members who will have fresh ideas that are better on technology, yet they'll come in as inexperienced board members. So let's take another 
sector. Chamber of Commerce is a, as an example. A lot of them come in from different businesses. They could be a financial planner, could be a realtor, and they're able to talk about things in common in the business community. They're basically there to meet people, increase their revenue, reduce their expenses, so they can talk as a group. Hmm. If all of them come in, say, as dental technologists, they're kind of competing for the same business. So I hear board diversity is, is super Diversity, important. absolutely. The gender equity diversity of it, the age diversity, and uh, you're going to continue to see that, and it's going to go as we age faster and faster and faster, and the more we embrace it, and some organizations won't. They just won't. Uh, and some will, and some have got it right in their uh, their mandate that they do that. So I guess the two things together, if we look at developing the board sustainably, because obviously if you have a bunch of baby boomers or board people that are set to leave the organization, and then you have a bunch of, well, you have a homogenous board, mm-hmm. you know, what are the processes, if they're starting to look at that, what are the processes that they would need to put in place to start bringing in that diversity and to br- develop that sustainability if you have like a one, two, three step kind of model for that? Yeah, uh, well, uh, one of the trends is smaller boards. So that does complicate things a little bit. And then the amount of people that are on that board, depending on the time they've been on the board, makes a big difference. So I'll go in and work with the board and I'll find that they, you know, some people have been on at 12, 16, 18 years. And right off the bat, I know, well, we've got a bit of a problem here. Whereas when people change their bylaws, they may start restricting it to a maximum of six years. So you're turning the board faster. You're needing more board members. So this opens it to uh, that ability to diversify. And then when we go back and talk about that board matrix, you can ask an extra few columns in there. Uh, You know, you can't ask a person their age, but you can take a look at their experience and get an idea Hmm. of what it is. And uh, certainly some boards do need uh, some members on it that have got previous competencies in board management. But other ones, no, it's uh, it's absolutely open. And uh, I'll just finish that by saying, you know, the way things have happened, there is not a better time to recruit board members than right now. And another thing people say to me oftentimes is I can't get board members. I can't find board members. I, I did a survey several years ago through the MBA graduating class at uh, Simon Fraser. The number one reason that people are were not volunteering as board members is that they had never been asked. And the number two reason was that they had never been asked the right way. What is the best way to ask? Is it as simple as like posting on LinkedIn and saying, I need board members? And what is the right way to ask? No, it doesn't, doesn't work. There's, no, there's I know no, that, but no, it's my lead. <laughs> yeah, some people will pay for, a, you know, like a paid advertisement, say, will you come and join our board? Uh, never happens. Okay, so what is the best way? Pardon me? What is the way to do it? If that's not the way, what is the way to do it? Or what? Well, I are... used, you used the analogy of basketball. So let's take that. You've got the basketball team as a uh, board of directors. And you've got farm teams of individuals. 
And these farm teams perhaps are committees or task forces, and you get an opportunity to look at who on the farm teams are performing, who does what they say they're going to do, who's there, who doesn't give excuses, and you identify these people, and you have a nominating committee, and then you go and you can choose, pick and choose from the farm team who you would like to elevate to the board. Now, that's the sports analogy, of, but I think you, you get the same idea. So just to make sure it, as part of it, and so what I'm really looking for is actionable things our people can take in, because you know it at such a deep level where some people are sort of just figuring it out. But what I hear is them the importance of developing a, a sort of a pipeline of a pipeline. Board members, okay. yeah. of people that can come yeah. in. Got that. Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, on my website, which I'm sure that you'll mention a little bit later, the ad, there's a sim, an area on there on resources. About three or four down, there's a, an article on build your pipeline of board members, and that's kind of the how. Excellent. And then what is the – and I don't know if that article answers the same question. What is – you mentioned they never got asked the right way. What is the right way to ask, or what is important to include in that? Well, well, they always make a joke about, uh, you know, you might be uh, at a trade show or something, and you leave and you go to the washroom, and you kind of find uh, you come back, and somebody's elected you to a board. <laughs> yes, I'm familiar. Yeah, don't open your mouth during the meeting. But if you uh, – have identified an individual who has shown a keen interest in the, uh, whether it be a charity or an association, and you see that they're a bit of a go-getter, they're a good communicator, it's it very easy to kind of take them aside and say, look, this is, an, we have a growth opportunity here. We're looking for key individuals. We do have a nominating committee. If you were offered an opportunity to run for the board of directors. Could I support you in any way? Could I help you with that? Can you, do you have any questions? And by the way, our meetings are no longer face-to-face. -face. We do them all on Zoom. We get them done in 45 minutes or some of this two and a half hour on and on and on chatting. And through our training, you know, we can install some sort of uh, hybrid Robert's rules of order to make it quick and snappy and move quickly. But if you just say, hey, you want to be on our board or, you know, what about this guy or what and pointing at people or waiting until they go to the washroom doesn't work. So what I hear from that and for everybody you know, listening at home, I, I think the stressing the importance of developing your board as not like a side of the desk thing. Yeah, as, yeah, as, exactly. Yeah, develop your organization yeah. and intentionally yeah. find people, intentionally frame the opportunity. And what, what I really liked about what you mentioned, Terry, is being there and explicitly saying what support is there. Like, would you like to do this instead of telling them they're going to do it instead of being volunteer? Yeah, yeah. Saying, hey, can I, would, you, is, would this interest you? And, and building a, a pipeline and a structure around it. So you're exactly. The things you had mentioned, Terry, earlier was around the, the lack of focus and, and sort of the board meeting mix up or talking around in circles. Before I ask you that question, Annie Rodriguez had a question around how do you transform a board from more advisory to fundraising? So I guess an advisory board to a fundraising working board. What have you seen? What are some best practices you've seen in driving that forward? Well, certainly, and, and you can answer this a little bit better a little bit later than I can, but it's through the strategic plan, 
uh, really identifying is that what they want to be a fundraising board. And if they want to be some somewhat fundraising and operational and coming from advisory, I would be doing some questioning, deep questioning. I would wonder, well, why do they want that? Is uh, Are their staff not doing that? Are the boards that are advising just chatting and not really have goals? Do they have a financial crisis issue? Have they recently got a charitable number so they feel that they can go out and raise funds and uh, issue tax receipts? So the first thing is why? If their plan says that they are going to do it, at the same time they, they do their plan, we have to identify, well, who's going to do it? Now, some of those people that are on the advisory board, they're not the right fit for fundraising. Mm. They, they just aren't. So you're going to have to have a review of the board, get in a, a very complete fundraising model with terms of reference, job descriptions, and then you're going to have to have a buy-in from the whole board or some of the people are probably going to have to leave, but some of the people are going to have to leave anyway. So what I hear is it's not as it's not just like flicking a switch. No. How long would you say it would take? Because obviously you have the terms of reference and you have like board terms and, and all of that. Yeah. I wanted to do a full transformation of the board from, let's say, an advisory board to a fundraising board. How long have, would you think that would take? Or how well, long you, you've asked one of the more difficult ones for timing. And that's part more of a, a long term timing, because when the board makes that strategic change, who's going to be doing the work in the meantime? And that work is raising funds, is bringing bringing money in, unless you uh, have got good reserves or great membership base that's uh, very competent, you'll be okay. Most times I get asked to say, we've got an operational board. They keep getting involved in what the executive director is supposed to be doing. A lot of them have got good ideas. We want them to be a policy board. Now, there's two types of policies. There's the operational, the hands-on. Mm-hmm. How do we do this? Exactly. And then there's the overall big-picture policy. They're the overall big-picture policy. They will approve the budget for the organization. They will review the vision of the organization. They'll talk about the mandate. But there's a separation between what the staff does and what the board does. So they move for operational hands-on to policy hands-off. There will still be those gray areas. And especially when somebody comes in from another board and it's their first day on the job at the board meeting and they'll want to know what's going on in the office these days. And um, that just doesn't work. Yeah. So what I hear is, and I'm just, if you hear me tapping away, I'm texting to Jason. So yes. we yeah, sure no, no, answer all of those questions that are happening in the back end. So I hear that it, it, it really is a transformation. I, I heard, but you didn't say that it ties into the strategic plan, the overall direction that the board has in. And it's not just as easy as a switch, but it really has to be an increment. Yeah. 
yes, yeah. people that are good at fundraising, balancing that sort of skills matrix that you have on the board and intentionally shifting over time the terms of reference and then making sure that you don't drop the ball in terms of getting the money in the door on the front end or just the overall operations. Yeah, exactly. And I think what they I would uh, suggest to them is that they may take a task force which would be some board members and perhaps some from the farm team, you know, put them together and let's try out fundraising in a particular area, continue with your regular board work. And then the task force would come back and uh, uh, talk to them aboard, you know, is this realistic? So, you know, we have to have that, those words of, uh, you know, is, is this the right move that we want to make? I like the idea of a task force because then it it yeah. sounds like it gives you a little bit of flexibility without being stuck in the turns and like being stuck in that governance structure. You just have like a working team to move forward uh, little pieces. Exactly. Yeah. That's another trend coming up for 2001. And it's been one for the last few years. Less committees. I would call them standing committees. They're enshrined in the bylaws. There would be very few, like you would have your governance and audit, your finance. You may have a membership committee, but the rest of them are all task forces. It could be, say, for your your annual conference. It's got a a start date, a stop date. It's got a budget. When it's over, it's over. Mm -hmm. And so you're not carrying that all the way through and having board reports where it basically says, oh, we have no board report to read. We haven't done anything. Yeah, I get the sense that there's a lot of people, they're sort of like death by committee, where they have like a committee for this and a committee for that and a committee for that. And I find that, especially not for profits, but even for profits, you know, if they've got too much stuff going on, they can't actually accomplish anything because they've just yeah. got all, all these different people and they're all over the place. I'm working with a group right now to try to manage four different subcommittees they have because there's no organization. The, there's nobody to lead the subcommittees. They're all self-governed which is a challenge because the idea of the committee is great, but it doesn't actually move it forward. So it actually ties into the the next question because I know one of the things that you deal with a lot is ineffective boards or under effective boards where there is potentially a lack of focus or meetings that ultimately don't accomplish what they need to accomplish every time. So uh, David Eaton uh, from the UK had a question saying, what are the reoccurring items that should be on the agenda of the board? Uh, Certainly a um, written, pre-circulated chief staff officer report. If they don't have a chief staff officer, who would make that report? They, well, the, the executive director, in this case, I'll use the word executive director. That report on operations, uh, on finances, would go to the board in advance in a written format with a confirmation that the board members have got it. So as you're going through the agenda, you're not, what about this and what about that? You've got the report. You've read it. The executive director would just say, I sent out my report. Then do you have any questions? A little more eloquent than that. So that's a for sure on there. Finances is a for for sure on that. And like I've said to an executive director, I've said to the treasurers, if you come to a board meeting and you don't have current financial statements, I'm going to cut you some slack, just like a a tiny bit of slack. Who knows? Maybe there was equipment breakdown. 
you come to two board meetings without your financials, you start preparing your resume. So financials have to be on there because remember, some of the board members are personally responsible for some of the line items on there. So really making sure that if there is a must, it's, I guess, the operational report, like what's been done and then the money part of it as well. Another one that it doesn't happen very often and it could go in the executive director's report is a variance report. I like to put a variance report in. I believe that if you you can't teach it unless you've done it. So I started off as an executive director with a high profile organization. And occasionally we would get some numbers that would be kind of tilty. And so I thought, ah, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to put in a variance report. If there's anything that varies according to budget, say 10% higher or 10% lower, I'm going to put that in as a variance. And why? So there's no questions. If there's an issue, I could say I gave you the information. I gave it to you in advance. And a lot of times they'll just look at it and say, okay, now I understand. So what I what I hear, so again, the the basically updates, finances, sort of big differentiate, big differential uh, as an as an ED yeah. or chief of staff in your case. And most of the time I've actually only ever seen an ED or even just like a president of the company or what have you. I hear that it's like there's the smoothness, the continuity. Like we don't want surprises. If you exactly. present, yeah. Yeah. you help your board avoid those surprises. Yeah. And in that way, they don't have to get into the nitty gritty because I find that most executive directors don't want to be micromanaged. So like do yourself a favor, don't allow your board or don't require your board to micromanage or just manage you, like manage them, lead them and have them be able to provide the advice or provide their connections to to support. Some of the executive directors, a a bit of just a tip on that. If you're bringing somebody into a board that's an entrepreneur, be very careful that uh, there's an understanding between the type of model you're using or if they're going to get involved in operations. They're entrepreneurial, especially if they're a self-made individual. Show me everything. How do we do? Have you thought about this? And the executive director is just, oh, no. So that's my tip for the day. (laughs) <laughs> and sometimes, sometimes that's good. Sometimes that's what you need, but if that's oh, yeah, not what you yeah, need. Absolutely. So yeah. I do want to ask you about the types of models. Before I do that, we have a question from YouTube. What advice would you give to someone who would like to get on a board? Well, it depends. For example, if you're in the banking sector, you'll find a lot of people that are in their 20s who are starting off who want to excel within the banking sector, learn more, meet people, they can get involved with a local business improvement association or a chamber by perhaps joining a committee, the farm team again, uh, asking some questions, But and, and that's basically for their career. They can also do that if they want to learn and grow. Or the other thing I asked them, if you could do anything on a board, what would you like to do before you even start this? There's boards for basically everything. And say a person is a real sporting enthusiast. You could get involved with a sporting group. If you want to take that into a subsector, you could get it into a a soccer 
Association board. And in British Columbia here, the British Columbia Soccer Association, which is absolutely huge, dynamic, it's the greatest place to be involved on a board. So be very clear on what you want to do, where you want to do it, and why you want to do it. And here's another tip. If you're someone that would love to be paid to be on a board, go on the government, British Columbia government website, and there are board opportunities that pay. And I imagine that there's the, uh, some sort of equivalent, because again, we've got re- listeners from all over the world here. Um, I imagine that there's their local governments probably have equivalent things, most likely. Yeah, I'm, uh, my, um, my area is uh, generally Canada, generally Western Canada. But uh, say if you take Ontario, uh, yes, or even uh, in, in Georgia, uh, yes, center of the political world right now. Excellent. Uh, do you have any connections on that Soccer BC bo- or Soccer Canada board for myself? Soccer, soccer BC, I absolutely do. Cool. I, uh, we can talk about that after. I'm going to change yeah. the plug oh, for yeah. myself. <laughs> yeah. um, and, and for listeners at home, and like I don't know if you know my journey, but I just made up being a strategic planning facilitator. Like I wasn't born that way. And what I did was I just found to t- I did exactly what Terry suggested. I just found opportunities to contribute. I was on the Small Business Council of the Vancouver Board of Trade, led the events committee. I joined the Business Improvement Association where my co-working right. space was. And I became the chair of the Green Chamber of Commerce, really just because I wanted to develop the experience right. to yeah. get in the room in those conversations. And And Terry, what I think I heard you say was that it's sort of like levels, like you have to start small and then you yeah, grow and yeah. then you grow and you grow and grow and grow and then you develop your capacity for governance and, and leadership. And I think that applies to everybody, even if you've been in your career 20 years, you still need to develop the repetition and the and the line of sight into that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. You've taken the right track. Excellent. So I've got a couple more questions here. Um, Steven Shapiro has asked, what is the optimal number of board members on a nonprofit board? I don't know if there is an optimal number, but from your perspective, what have you seen to, I would assert, you know, for optimal governance and optimal flow? Well, I've worked with anywhere from uh, six to 52. Uh, and it depends on the size, the complexity, the region. Is it all of Canada? Do they have an executive committee and like they have a a smaller board and a larger board? Uh, So that's a tough one to answer. I would just immediately throw out eight to 10. 10 to 12 is around the average for British Columbia. uh, And that would probably go right across Canada. But they brought a new society act in a few years ago. And um, that's, that's the government act that all organizations must belong to, whether that be provincial or federally, where you can have a board with one individual on it. Now, it's not good. You'll never get charitable status, and I would never never recommend it. But to answer your question, if you just said, how many, Terry? I'd say uh, probably eight. And I guess that that means like it's also not just the number, but I assume the quality like get 10 really good board members instead of like 20 because it's you know makes it easier to manage both at the top level but then also up down well if you've got an advisory board you may want six or eight uh different advisory competencies 
but if you've got a full working operational board with a large budget and a large region, you probably want a large amount of directors. I'm not recommending that at all, but that is uh, the fact with some of them. Okay. So again, it's it depends. Yeah, which is my favorite consultant answer. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so Stuart is about to take on the executive director role of a nonprofit. It's a new position, and they're going to be moving from a working board to a governing board. Would love to hear your thoughts and advice on that sort of. I assume the, the transition of it and how to be successful in that. Stuart, if you got anything to add, just put it in there. And, and yeah, if there's any follow up on that. Uh, I would, again, I would ask why they want to do this. Is He's a new executive director. Is he bringing in some history where he's been on a particular board before and saying, no, you need a policy board, a policy governance board, or has the board decided we want a governance policy board and we want an executive director that knows how to manage that? And so that's why they brought him or her in. Yeah. Uh, if the uh, new executive director has come from an operational board and doesn't really know what a policy board is, he or she will have to find out or it will go sideways. So again, I think it, it goes back to your you know very first point of making sure that the roles are clear, making yeah. sure that the model is clear, and, and spending probably you know Stuart is with my advice, take it or leave it, is is spending that time to set up that structure and make sure that you have alignment in terms of like what you're trying to accomplish, you're trying to accomplish it, and why now. Yeah. Anything you want to add on that? Jerry? No, no, you covered that. And remember, there's there's. Not a lot of things that are new with things like roles and responsibilities, mandates, policies and procedures. There's templates all over the Internet. Uh, people can drop me an email and I've just got tons of them that I can send out. So don't reinvent the wheel out there. Excellent. Jason, if you can drop uh, Terry's email address in the chat and uh, his website, realboardsolutions.com. CA.com? Realboardsolutions.com. So check him out. He's got a lot of great content. Uh, I met Terry like I think 10 years ago at a presentation on board governance put on by a a different group and I've been able to see all of his stuff. So that's why I knew he'd be, brings a wealth of knowledge, especially, I mean, specialized to Western Canada, but I think a lot of them are applicable across all sectors. And it's not just experience, but one of the reasons you have a board is, is so that you can get different perspectives. So creating a board is actually a way to support your success, both as a leader and as a, as executive director. So yeah. I got one question from the chat, and then I have a question from one of my clients that asked, but we'll go to the chat question first, is what, are, in your view, are the most frequent failures of boards? Where do boards fail the most? Not repeating myself, but I will. The uh, incorrect board model not knowing their roles and responsibilities, not actually having. Can you imagine going to a job? Because that's what it is. It's a job. And them not giving you a, this is your role and responsibility. This is what you do. This is what you're accountable for. This is what conflict of interest is. Please sign this commitment letter. And I can probably hear a lot of nothingness in the background because they'll be saying, well, we sort of have that and we sort of don't. But I wouldn't go to a board. Like, say, the Vancouver Board of Trade. When you go there, you get everything. You get the whole package. They don't miss miss a beat. Other organizations, 
they will just say, hello, this is the coffee pot and uh, join us in the meeting. Oh, by the way, we don't really have an agenda. We just kind of wing it. So there's a lot of different types of boards. Yeah. And it goes back to that again, not to repeat yourself, but yeah, um, yeah. that it is a process and that yeah. newer organizations are going to have newer models and structure. And just like any business would, you know, you've got policies and procedures. It's about putting the systems in place so that it can grow sustainably and support the people within it. So it's like a maturity kind of thing. Probably the other, uh, the second and last reason on this, I mean, we could go on and on forever on this one, but it's having the incorrect executive director. So uh, if you were to say to me, how long should an executive director stay around? I would say no more than seven years. After seven years, you've typically run out of energy in that sector. You understand how it works. Time to move on. Seven years. There's some sectors like, say, the Chamber of Commerce movement. They've got about a 50% turnover rate every two years. So they're coming and going. So the board is going to have a real problem a real disaster unless they've got the correct executive director with the correct training for the maximum amount of years. You're saying that the too much turnover from the executive director position that you'd want more continuity, but not more than seven years. Yeah. Yes. You're right on. What if you're an executive director and we'll call it, you inherited suboptimal organization. So the previous executive director led a certain way and they did it an okay job. You come in as the executive director. You've got way more experience and you want to like whip the organization into shape. <laughs> you don't want to, you know, piss a bunch of people off in the process. How do you get your board on your side to help you make those changes, but not make it seem like you're trying to like destroy everything that was built before then? Part of it is the uh, interview process, uh, the questioning. Um, I would say interview longer and ask a lot more questions about things like background and change plans for the future. Find out uh, where there's going to be obstacles. Find out who's champions on your team and then start slowly. Don't come up with your first agenda as being totally different and wanting to rename committees and eliminate people. And uh, doing some of those things can be career limiting. And what if you've already been in the organization for a little bit and now you rec you didn't ask those on the front end, you recognize the need on the back end. Is it about transparency and openness that you to say, hey, here's what I see and I need your support? Or do you just go about making sweeping changes? Well, uh, I belong to an organization called the Canadian Society of Executive Directors, and they're all made up of executive directors. It's a high-class, high-end organization that puts out a lot of best practices, and one is a code of ethics. Hmm. And so I would look at all executive directors to sign a code of ethics so that if there was a breach, say conflict of interest, it's very clear on how they identify it, and what they do about it. Because a person could get in there and they could say, oh, I see. One of the board members is renting us the building. I didn't know that as a staff member. Now, is that a conflict of interest or is that a perceived conflict of interest? How do we determine this? What do I say to who? That's just one item. And there, there could be a whole 
thorn of items. I want to recommend a book here before we get along to this is by a, a collaborator of mine. It's called 101 Boardroom Problems. It's number one to 100. It's what the problem is, what's the potential damage, and what's the intervention. It's a great book for executive directors, brand new or experienced. And the page I turn to, page 41, it says, what happens when you have just quick votes? Or another page, you know, uh, the chair who has biased discussions. And it goes on and on. So uh, 101 boardroom problems and how to solve them. I still want to ask you about the, the different board structures. Just one more question that we have is, let's say you aren't the executive director, you're not on the board, and you're in a position of leadership, and you're sort of at the will of that communication between the board and the, and the executive director or the CEO. What can you do to contribute to that? How can you support being successful when you're sort of not at the table with the CEO and the board? How can you like be successful in that relationship? Because I see that executive directors sometimes say, hey, this is what I'm getting from my board, now do this, and they're sort of at the will of what happens. How can you make yourself be less at that will and more like a contributor to that being successful? I don't know if that question made sense. Uh, absolutely. Um, going around the back of the executive director is uh, sometimes career limiting. Being a part of a committee giving ideas to other individuals on the committee to bring it back to the board is one way that will work. Uh, certainly for items that are really serious um, and one of the you know emerging trends is having some sort of a whistleblower policy, but you have to be really careful that you're using that uh, at the right time and you've got your facts straight. But really the open, honest conversation with the executive director, uh, what about this or what about that? And it could be over a cup of coffee, or it could be when they get a uh, performance review. I'll leave that thought on one of the things that have fallen off this year is executive directors' annual performance reviews. They typically aren't happening. Mm. And uh, uh, board members' self-evaluation reviews, they're typically not happening. So 2021 is going to be a really condensed year, kind of like the NHL hockey schedule. Mm. Uh, a, lot, a, lot, a lot to get done, a lot of catch up. Yeah. So I, I hear, just go back to that first question is really acknowledging that there is a channel and like that transparency and making sure that you respect the channels. But I think if you understand how the game is played and that there there is these <laughs> systems, that you play within the systems, but also, you know, like in all of them, bringing up that transparency, bringing up that openness and addressing problems. You know, some people have problems addressing things head on, uh, but being really direct in terms of, hey, this is what I see. This is what I need. And I'm here to help you be successful and, and sort of co-creating that, those, yeah. those yeah. things. So I do want to ask you, as we begin to wrap up here, you, you had we started today talking about the different board models. So what are the different board models that you like the best that you see and that our listeners can start looking at implementing with their teams if they're trying to build more structure in place? Well, I like a hybrid Carver governance policy. And the Carver policy portion of it is determining what policies the organization is going to have, the direction that they're going to go. The hybrid portion of it is looking at the board members and their skill sets 
and asking some of the board members to join a kind of a quasi or hybrid working committee or working task force. You may have a lawyer on the board and you may ask them to join a task force, but it's complex. But boy, if you can get it right, you've got the best model. Got it. So I encourage everybody, I mean, go to Terry's website, realboardsolutions.com. Uh, the, uh, his website is in the chat box and you can find that. Go take a look at some of the resources that he's got. Look at that Carver model. I'm taking away from today, Terry. And, and you got it here. Yeah, yeah, you're really paying attention. <laughs> trying here is um, the key is to build a system. Whatever the yeah, system is, yeah. is that it needs to be formalized, it needs to be clear, and it needs to have buy-in so that everybody on there understands what it is. I have another question that came up in the chat, and we're just we do have to finish up here is around not like ruffling feather feathers, but I think Terry, you might say that by having that structure, transparency, and and bringing it to the table as part of your board report, then that's exactly the channel that yeah. the board and the executive uh, directors are designed to have as long as the relationship is clear and explicit yeah clear clear understanding and buy-in everybody agrees that yeah absolutely Absolutely. uh anything else that you want to share or where can people get a hold of you as we as we wrap up today uh well i'm very approachable you know i've got my uh linkedin on the website my email address there's some good resources there's a one out there that the executive directors will like it's called what would happen if your board just up and left? So I like to put a bit of humor in things, keep it light, because um, you know life's too short to uh, get too serious about some of these things. But on the other hand, when you can be in jeopardy, financial jeopardy, by being on a board, you have to be very careful and find out about that. Absolutely. I got that. Well, Terry, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been an amazing conversation. Super appreciated your insight. I know it made a big difference to everybody listening today. So I just wanted to thank you for joining us. Yeah, just appreciate it. Great. Let's do it again. Absolutely. Okay. Thank you, everyone. My guest today has been Terry Clark from Real Board Solutions. Um, If you have any other questions for Terry, be sure to connect with him, realboardsolutions.com. You can check out the book, 101 Boardroom Problems and How to Solve Them on Amazon. Put the link in the chat. And if you enjoyed today's webinar, be sure to let us know what you think and if you enjoyed it. And we wish you the most success. And we'll see you next time. Bye, everyone. Take care, all. Bye. Thanks so much for listening to today's episode. Before you go, I wanted to make sure that you knew about our signature course that will help you better align your team and get them bought into your strategic plan. It's presented really simply that whether you're a seasoned veteran or brand new to strategic planning, it'll help you better understand it, it'll help your team think more strategically, and it'll help you better prioritize and set goals. Ultimately, it's going to give you a plan that you can execute successfully. Because you have no idea how many plans that I see that look good, but are missing key components to make them successful. And we cover all of those missteps in the course. On top of all the video training, you'll get access to all of our workbooks and access to our knowledge base and community. The course is only $4.95 and you can get instant access to all of the videos. Plus, you can use the code podcast for $100 off. Course comes with a 100% money back guarantee. If you don't get value from the course, let us know and we'll give you all of your money back. So go to smestrategy.net slash course 
Use the code podcast for $100 off. And I'm really looking forward to the opportunity to support you and your team in getting alignment and moving your strategic plan forward. Thanks again for listening and we'll catch you next time.